tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning we hear from State Health Director Dr. Kenneth Fink, uh, trained as a family physician. Uh, he recently worked for the Kamehameha Schools and served in Operation Enduring Freedom as part of the National Guard. He attributes his public service to his parents, a dentist and a teacher. He came to our, our studios earlier today to talk about his priorities of getting staff, budgets, and resources in order. He's deeply committed to safe drinking water and addressing Red Hill. When I first came to the state about 15 years ago, it was to take the job as the MedQuest Division Administrator, uh, which is actually in the Department of Human Services. So now I, I have an opportunity with the Department of Health. You were also with Kamehameha Schools prior to being tapped here. Correct. So after my time, my first tour with the state, uh, I was very fortunate to have an opportunity with Kamehameha Schools. I was there for about six years, and that was a wonderful experience. And then you were also a longtime guardsman. So I joined the guard back in 2000 and had a number of opportunities. I was a, a traditional reservist. I was uh, deployed in support of Operation During Freedom. I then was assigned to the Military Medical School, the Uniformed Services University. And then I transferred to the Hawaii Air National Guard, where I finished my career. Was there anything in particular that spurred you to go into public service? You know, I was thinking about that, and as I was writing some of my written testimony for my hearing, I was reflecting on that. I'm not sure where that came from. You know, my father was a general dentist. Uh, my mom was a teacher. And then when I looked at my brother and sister, we all kind of ended up doing something to support our communities. So I, I guess I'll attribute some of it to my parents, but it's uh, just grateful for what I have, and it's an opportunity to give back. Well, it is a challenge being the health director, particularly coming out of this pandemic. I know, you know, Dr. Libby Char and uh, Bruce Anderson, you know, certainly had their, their hands full, you know, navigating through this. And the short staffing, you know, was a problem. But post-pandemic, there are still equally challenging situations, and, and the staffing issue hasn't really gone away. You know, credit to really the department staff and the leadership uh, to get really the, our community, our state through the pandemic. We are on the downslope, but COVID is still around. Uh, we just saw an you know increase in hospitalizations. You know, last week that was reported. So we, we still do encourage those who have not yet received the booster shot to to go get so, especially those who are at increased risk. The staff they worked really hard for a really long time. I, I think they deserve our appreciation. They're tired, and I. I think right now they just need you know an opportunity to feel supported appreciate it just a chance to catch their breath while we you know regroup and proceed with addressing the other needs of the state we have had lots of challenges uh, I know during the pandemic the staff worked hard to you know make sure they got the you know birth and death certificates out that kind of backslid I think we had a, a couple of months of wait for uh, the death certificates what's the status of that now we have about a 24 percent vacancy rate and that's significant, and it means that those who are working are working very hard and oftentimes doing the work of some others. I, I guess I shouldn't say I was surprised, but I kind of was surprised when I started in this role to see how much of the other work of the department was continued. You know, to think that everybody just dropped everything to, to focus on COVID, yes, there was redirection, but a lot of the core responsibilities of the department continue through the pandemic. With our staffing impact, it does affect client service. So there is a backlog of issuing certificates. We're working on that. It's a staffing issue. It's an old system, which we're upgrading. So I think that the people are working hard. Uh, we need to improve the system in which they're able to work and make sure that they have the right supports. There was re recently a security breach. Is there anything you can share uh, an update on that? The update is we are implementing those security measures, requiring a more complex password. So this is for the medical certifiers who have to go into just one small part of the death registry system to enter the some information about the, the death itself. So we're adding security measures for those who access that account. And in addition, we will are still working on modernizing that system. Uh, so we you know, we're working to make that system more secure to ensure it doesn't recur. I know that you folks were sending out letters to people who had their files looked at. Is there any additional information, though, any update on that? In those letters, we provided a phone number. So we've been answering calls for people who were concerned if, you know, they're you know, loved one was someone who was impacted. Last I checked, we had received about 70 calls that we'd responded to. I haven't heard other concerns where people have been impacted otherwise. 
you're trying to manage some of these issues, you know, whether it's upgrading a computer system or getting systems to talk to each other. But what's your vision for the department? Where would you like to see this department go? It's a big department. We have about 3,300 positions, and we have kind of four, we call them administrations. So one is the administrative, which is the IT, HR, you know, some policy work. Another one, which is health resources, what we would consider kind of disease outbreak, chronic disease. One, which is behavioral health, and the other one, which is environmental health. So it's, it's pretty broad. So I need to rely on other people to have the expertise. I'm a generalist, uh, and others will have kind of that subject matter expertise. So it really is a team approach to address the breadth of the department. To answer your question about kind of priorities, I think it's critical to create a safe and supportive environment for the staff, um, especially coming back, you know, down from the pandemic and engage them. They're going to have the best ideas. They're in the trenches and, and they're going to see what will help them be more successful or how we could do a better job. There was a lot of federal funding that came in during the pandemic. We're trying to get our arms around what was spent, what's remaining, and you know, what's referred to un unwinding, um, how we do that in the Department of Health for where do we need to find supplemental funding or where there are things we no longer need to do, um, you know, that's a critical piece. As we're focusing then on our mission and being responsible stewards of not only the resources that we get from, you know, the legislature, but also our natural resources. So, you know, Red Hill is a, a key issue that we'll need to be needing to address in the next year, ensuring that the Navy commits to a firm timeline and we very much want them to commit to begin defueling by the end of the calendar year. The Department of Health is committed to ensuring we have a safe environment, including safe drinking water. We are absolutely committed to ensuring the Department of Defense uh, is accountable for defueling, decommissioning, and aquifer remediation. We're working very closely with them, and we're clear on our expectations. Have you had an opportunity to tour the Redhead facility at all? I've not yet had the opportunity to see it firsthand. Uh, I look forward to that. We're waiting on a report on the Forever Chemicals, the AFFF uh, or the PFAS chemicals. I don't know why the military has not yet released that. I don't know if you're privy to any information about that at all. These PFAS are a family of chemicals, yes, called the Forever Chemicals because they last a long time. The aqueous film-forming foam, the AFFF, does contain these PFAS chemicals. There are also a lot of other things that contain these chemicals, such as stain-resistant fabrics, might be used for you know street coverings, food wrapping containers. So the, the PFAS, unfortunately, are dispersed in our community, and we're finding it increasingly throughout our water. I think this is going to be the next big issue for us in the Department of Health to look at to improve our understanding of PFAS and how we you know, mitigate the potential risk of it. But have you been privy to any information as to why the Navy is dragging its feet and releasing that publicly, that report? What I can say is PFAS has, as we're learning more about it, it previously was not required to be reported. So uh, there is nothing that was required to have been reported that wasn't. What we're learning now is that there were perhaps leaks, and we're trying to get information around that. Uh, so we want to make sure we understand what their risk was, and we look forward to having as complete information as possible. What are some of your other priorities? Mental health. And I think there's a whole array of mental health. Uh, so we see at the state hospital a uh, very high census. Are we sure that those are the folks who truly need to be in that setting? Are there alternative settings? How do we create support programs that might allow diversion? Uh, there's efforts underway to work with the judiciary, um, all the way to the front end uh, from a prevention side. Um, how do we make sure people just kind of get their outpatient treatment, so identification and treatment to prevent folks from uh, having uh, more acute episodes? Uh, so it's that whole continuum of mental health care that we're looking at strengthening. I, I think what people see mostly maybe in certain areas, houseless individuals uh, who may have mental illness or substance abuse. We, we certainly need to help care for that population, but it's a whole system that we need to make sure is strengthened uh, and in place to provide those continuum of services. We did talk to Marion Suji recently, and she talked about how the uh, Gutenberg building is being renovated, and you know they're looking to maybe you know use that 
structure to help house some of our mentally ill uh, homeless people? I don't know how far that plan is along. One uh, immediate need uh, that we're pursuing uh, is what we would call just a crisis center. Uh, that someone would need to come in, potentially, you know, in Oahu, HPD could drop them off uh, to stabilize these individuals. And then if they need a longer term stabilization, whether it's at that facility or somewhere else. But that acute crisis care, we're looking for a facility for that, and then we need a workforce for that. So as we're exploring facilities, we've looked at buildings on the site of the state hospital, which Goonsburg is one of them. There's another building there we're looking at Bishop. We're having conversations with city and county where we could partner. So we are very much looking for a facility, but then we're still limited by the workforce. We don't have a surplus of mental health providers here, and where do we just get them or pull them from? So that, that's a challenge, too. We need to continue to create a, a pipeline. We're starting with Windward Community College to have a, a psychiatric technician program uh, to get more folks, hopefully, in the field. So there's, there's more work to be done. You know, our, our mission is to promote and prevent the health of the public you know, with regard to their you know, physical, behavioral, and environmental health. And then our, you know, our vision is that uh, everyone in Hawaii you know, has a just and fair opportunity to achieve their optimal health. You know, when I, I saw an interesting map uh, that showed life expectancy, uh, and if you look at just at Oahu, on opposite ends of H1, so from Waianae to Hawaii Kai, the lifespan has a 10-year difference. So people in Waianae, on average, would have a 10-year shorter lifespan. So as we look at health disparities or health equity, that is something that I uh, look forward to doing more work around to see how we can reduce that gap. Thank you so much for coming in and, and uh, just talking with us. I think it's helpful for people to get to know the new state health director. Great. Well, thanks very much for having me. That was Dr. Kenneth Fink, who's been tapped to lead the state health department under Governor Josh Green. Fink still needs a confirmation floor vote by the Senate, though that has yet to be scheduled. tune to the conversation here on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oa, omoloka, olana, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. A little later in the show, we have a story about two teenage brothers who donate used sports equipment to Palau. So today we are taking a look at a native Hawaiian baseball player well known for his antics both on and off the field. Henry Owana Jr. was born in 1910. He attended St. Louis School where he excelled as a five-sport star. Of all the sports he played, baseball was where he displayed the greatest talent. A gifted slugger with a cannon for an arm, Owana joined up with an independent team on an exhibition tour of Japan in 1928. During one outing, he caught the eye of baseball legend Ty Cobb. At Cobb's urging, Oana tried out for the San Francisco Seals Baseball Club, eventually making the team as an outfielder. After joining the club, the owner advertised Oana as being descended from an ancient line of Hawaiian chiefs, which led to a nickname that stuck throughout his career. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the royal moniker that this Hawaiian slugger went by. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NareetHawaii.com. 
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Howard Eisenberg, author of Dream It, To Do It, The Science and the Magic. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about Decoding Reality 2.0. New Dimensions, beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a Master of Science program in travel industry management. More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. The GOP gained a few seats in Hawaii's legislature during the last election, but the strife among Republicans hasn't changed. HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden has been taking a closer look at the discord among House Republicans. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So as you mentioned, the Republican Party in the House of Representatives tripled this past year. So it went from two to six members. So it's kind of a thing where every member counts. And one of those new members is freshman lawmaker Representative Kanani Souza of Kapole and Makakilo. She's a former city and county of Honolulu deputy prosecutor. And in title, she's the minority caucus whip. She identifies as a more conservative or moderate conservative compared to more fringe members of the party. And at the end of January, she stopped attending caucus meetings, which shows some sort of fragmentation in the Republican Party. And even while campaigning, she resisted being tied to the party. As a Republican, you always feel very marginalized, especially in campaigns, and you feel like, you know, you're not supposed to get elected because that's not typically what happens with Republican candidates in Hawaii. And so going into um, November, you know, once I did get elected, I thought that, okay, as a Republican, I would, you know, be with the rest of the group fighting the establishment and, and um, you know, seeing all of the corruption that, you know, we are supposed to believe um, that is taking place in government. And I don't doubt that it exists, but my experience has been really positive coming into the, le- the legislature, working in a bipartisan manner with my Democrat colleagues, you know, they're supposed to be the big bad wolves of the legislature, and it has not been that way at all. It's been very collaborative, very professional, and we are all working for the betterment of the people of Hawaii, which I thought that there would be more of a tug of war. And further, to be more of an independent thinker, I decided to basically stay away from the Republican caucus and, you know, whatever they're trying to do. Um, It doesn't necessarily align with my values as far as the approach that is being taken. Interesting. So Sousa says that her beliefs fall more in line with somebody who will say no to restrictive gun laws, but yes on reproductive rights legislation. And often she will directly counter claims made by fellow Republicans on the floor. So Sousa is also being compared to former Representative Cynthia Thielen, another moderate Republican who was in office for about 30 years, and she retired in 2020. She faced criticism for her liberal social beliefs. So party infighting came to a head for her in 2013 when she made her crucial vote for marriage equality known and fellow caucus members fought back. It was pretty brutal because the... Republican caucus members, all of them, including Beth Fukumoto, all of them moved to remove me from the Judiciary Committee when I had been serving on that for so many years. Um, And they wanted to take me off of the Judiciary Committee because I was the deciding vote on the marriage equality bill that was going to be heard. So there we are in the session, and my own caucus members stand up and and put in a motion to take me off of judiciary. And there I am standing up, supporting my remaining on the committee and supporting the right for a Republican to support marriage equality. 
without being punished for doing that. So the end result was enough Democrats voted to keep me on the committee. None of my Republican colleagues did. None of them. But enough Democrats did that I was able to stay on and then cast that important vote in favor of that. That was such an emotional time. I remember that. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. And Thielen has been watching uh, politics. She's kept up. She's been in this for so many years. And she called the party infighting right now disappointing. She says that the Republican Party has become more fringe and a right-wing group and that she's concerned about this trajectory. And Sousa, back in the day, she was a Capitol staff member. She says that she bases some of her own legislative philosophy on Thielen. The party has their own agenda and, you know, the caucus has their own agenda. And if it goes counter to their narrative, then they absolutely are disapproving of that. You know, and I've always respected the work that Cynthia Thielen has done. As a staffer, I was able to observe just her work ethic while in the building. And she was always very prepared for hearings and always understood the merits of the bill and always had good questions to ask during committee hearings. And so that's the type of legislator that that I strive to be. It's somebody who is prepared, somebody who does, you know, the appropriate research, has the knowledge required to be on the floor every day and to be in committee hearings and to fight for the people. And so I think it's important to have that perspective and to to have, you know, the Pat Psyches and the Cynthia Thielens of the Republican Party so that we can gain traction through credibility and sophistication. And until that happens, the party, in my opinion, will remain fragmented and the caucus will remain fragmented. So there has been a little bit of tension just within the Republican Party as well as across the aisle as well. And we, I worked on a story about Representative Gene Ward's words being stricken from the journal today. So that's airing on HPR. Yeah, all right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it definitely gives you a different perspective uh, of, of the House Republicans, but thanks again. We have been talking to HBR Sabrina Bowden about the tension among House Republicans. To read more of her stories, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Honolulu Civil Beat takes a closer look at a compost pile that isn't sitting right with some neighbors. Reporter Thomas Heaton joins us for our reality check. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yes. So we've heard lots about this composting program in our public schools, but this is a particular uh, campus on the Windward side? Yes. So this is um, one of five schools under the Windward Zero Wastes School Hui, Kainalu Elementary School, and what's happened is some neighbours have taken issue with where the compost piles have been placed, and which they say is, you know, uh, when it's not too windy, it's malodorous, and when it's too windy, it sends dust all through their homes. Um, so essentially, what's happened? This has been going on for a few years. In October 2019, they got the Department of Education's ear, and what happened then was they moved them. They moved the piles about 80 yards away from the property line that was shared by the school and these properties. But what's happened is there were two new piles created close to the property line again after they were moved in October 2019, and in February, essentially, the Department of Education closed the operation indefinitely. And now the Windward Zero Waste School Hui has raised the alarm and said, hey, look, the kids are upset. We were diverting about 200 pounds of food waste every day. Um, The piles represent about $15,000 of revenue for the school, and we need to find a resolution pretty swiftly. It sounds, though, like your story uncovered uh, some... I don't know if it's irregularities, but just maybe not the best practices when it comes to record keeping. Yes, so the Department of Education did find some inconsistencies in cash transactions and the invoicing. You know, Mindy, who runs the Zero Waste School, Hui, said, 
Well, it's the schools that do all of the record keeping. I just take the cash, put it in an envelope and give it to the schools. No one's ever asked me for invoicing on this level. I've been doing this for 18 years. And what am I to do here? Because the expectation was never set for me. She has done work funded by the city and county of Honolulu, which she says she included invoicing, all of that kind of thing for those projects. And it was just simply a matter of they didn't ask, so I didn't deliver that. Well, Mindy Jaffe has, you know, been around. Um, you know, she was a former lawmaker, and and uh, I guess maybe folks might be surprised that procedures weren't buttoned down. Uh, you know, I know DOE has had, you know, issues with I guess it was Mililani uh, High School, right? Had a booster club in the headlines recently because you know the main coach there is accused of you know diverting funds and so you want to make sure that there's some accountability when you're dealing with these nonprofit groups I think that uh, Mindy has said that she doesn't want the money that's what I was told you know the money's going straight to the straight to the schools but of course one has to wonder about those mechanisms being in place to ensure that the monies are the monies are accounted for and going to the right places Right. Obviously, you want best practices uh, because you don't want mm. to find yourself in the middle of a scandal. So mm. there, so the Department of Education is just taking a closer look at what's going on there, not just with the composting piles uh, maybe being too close to the neighbors, but also uh, just st- standard practices. That's what it appears to be. Um, and in the meantime, it's been about nine weeks since the compost piles were, they were off limits and apparently there should be a meeting in coming weeks between the complex superintendent, the principal, and hopefully Jeff, um, because I know I know that uh, Mindy really wants to see this resolved, and from what I understand, so do many in the community. I mean, you kind of wonder how do the other schools uh, do the bookkeeping, you know, or, mm. or, just, or does that one school uh, just need to tighten up on the management? Yeah, yeah, it really seems to be that's kind of one of maybe something that will come from this. This, I think, you know, there's probably a bit more to the story, and I'm keen to delve into that. I guess we'll see, because, you know, the the composting programs have been seen as a real success since, you know, coming through. They've diverted tons upon tons of waste. Just last year, they composted about 63 tonnes for for the five schools working with the Hui alone. There are currently 15 schools, including those five, um, in the Department of Education that do active composting programmes. You know, this was all set forth in about 2018. The implementation of Act 207, which was a pilot programme, which came with $300,000, which all went to a engineering firm, which was deemed as a little bit of a odd way of dispersing the money when there were these groups already in place. Best practices need to kind of make sure that those monies are going into the right places. Yeah, so I guess we'll see what comes out of the wash with this. All right. Okay, well, uh, good luck with your deep dive in the compost, but thanks so much, Thomas. Thank you so much, Catherine. That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. You can read the story online at civilbee.org. Support for HPR comes from Hakawone, committed to building a neighborhood in Kaka'ako Makai where all are welcome, offering keiki and kupuna care, and including a cultural center, farmers markets, and housing options. Hakawone.com. In the next episode of On Point's special series, The Power of Populism, we'll look at populism in the world's largest democracy. Right-wing populism defined people of the nation in ethnic, religious, or racially majoritarian ways. Religion is the master narrative of Indian politics. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following The Daily. 
Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, assisting clients with building and energy code compliance, featuring LEED certification services. GreenBuildingHawaii.com. As the focus this week turns to the Merry Monarch Kula Festival in Hilo, state agriculture officials are warning against the transporting of ohia flower lay off the Big Island. It's because of the threat of rapid ohia death, which is devastating our native forests on the island of Hawaii. The reminder comes as the Department of Land and Natural Resources has just discovered the disease in a Waianae forest here on Oahu. We talked to Jonathan Ho, Acting Plant Quarantine Inspection Branch Chief at the Department of Agriculture. Uh, it says that the disease has killed more than a million trees since its discovery about a decade ago. Rapid ohia death is a serious disease. Further spread on Big Island is bad, obviously, and then, you know, spreading beyond that to the rest of the state is obviously the, the goal of what we're trying to do, um, to, you know, to preserve Ohia for the for the, the entire state and particularly the Big Island. For folks that are going to be going to Mary Monarch, bringing Ohia to the island from a neighbor island is okay, but um, leaving the island with that material is not going to be allowed. One of the good things about Mary Monarch and the festival in of itself is that the community has been very proactive in trying to ensure that, you know, this disease is not spread across the state. So, you know, they have replaced a lot of ohia with, with similar things. And there's a huge outreach campaign throughout the festival, not only from the, you know, the practitioners, but also from um, there's a greater working group of um, other agencies that are involved with trying to prevent the spread of rapid ohia death, the LNR, HIF, um, the university the forestry service. I mean, there's a huge cadre of folks that are really trying to ensure that this doesn't spread. And there's a lot of outreach that occurs during the festival, before the festival. And as a result, because the disease has been around for a while and people are really aware of it, there are little to no folks that, you know, forget. It, mm -hmm. It's really rare. Most people are really aware of what the regulations are and, you know, they want to do their part. And we station staff just to ensure that, but, you know, it's, it's really a handful that occur after Mary Monarch. Talk about the history, you know, about when this was first detected and the concern that, yeah, when you go out to harvest ohia that, you know, you may be spreading the disease around, right? I mean, with your tools, your shoes. Yeah, so um, I believe it was uh, in 2010-ish is when I believe it was first detected in the state, or at least identified, or I guess maybe 2010 is when they first started noticing um, trees starting to die. The disease was, I think, identified as Ceratocystis fimbriata at the time in um, 14 or 15. There was a court uh, interim rule put in, I believe, in 16. And then um, I believe in 2017, there was the permanent rule that went into, into place. So um, things happened very rapidly you know, because of the importance of, of OHIA. They're still doing research and, you know, they're trying to, you know, do seed banks. They're trying to do um, treatments. There's there's a whole host of things that are occurring uh, with regards to this disease and preventing its spread across the state is, is of utmost importance. It has been detected on a couple of the islands as well, right, besides, besides Big Island? Correct. Um, there have been um, um, incidental detections across the state, but not widespread as they are on Hawaii Island for, you know, for whatever reason. And we've been able to nip it in the bud. You destroy those affected trees. So far, keep it yes, down. that's the way that it's been turning out. And we don't know where this came from, right? Yeah, the, um, I think, you know, they're, they're trying to do some research into that. And, um, you know, obviously, Ohia is endemic to Hawaii. So a disease that's new to science showing up all of a sudden like this is, you know, I think what a lot of the researchers are trying to do. There was some, I think, um, genealogy with regards to the disease that they tried to figure out where the lineage is. But nobody has, I think, at this point come to like, I think, that definitive idea of where this actually came from. Well, I know we did talk to, I think it was the USDA folks, and that they said there was research underway 
to try and figure out, you know, will this disease affect, I think, the New Zealand variety? Yeah, the Metrosideros excelsa. Bohotukawa or something? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah I, I believe that that's it, yeah. Yeah, uh, because, you know, we did some stories about how that tree is a very popular street tree in San Francisco, and the folks in New Zealand are worried because they don't want to see this disease affect their trees. Uh, so is there something that, that makes their variety resistant to this strain? Yeah, so, you know, um, with systemic funguses, um, things that, you know, grow inside of trees or inside of plants uh, or vascular diseases, I guess is probably the best way of putting it, um, a lot of times they are very host-specific. And within a genera, so Metrosideros, generally they're closely related, so there is the possibility of other species being um, highly susceptible. So the best way of preventing, ensuring that, you know, you don't have the same issue as what's happening in Hawaii is to prevent entry. And, you know, um, New Zealand is, you know, probably the world leader with regard to biosecurity, and they they take this kind of stuff very seriously. So, you know, you have obviously rapid ohia death, and then you also have um, ohia rust or guava rust as a different disease that also affects metrosideros. You know, while we know that the halau will often return, you know, some of the lay to the forest, Lots of ways that people are trying to prevent the spread by travelers. Is there anything else that, that you know of that's being done? Yeah, so I think it's that balance of, you know, maintaining, I think, accessibility, obviously, because, you know, this is such a culturally significant plant against trying to ensure that it doesn't spread. And all of that research, you know, whether it be diseases, origin, resistance in, in natural populations, um, all those things are trying to go on to ensure that, you know, Ohia doesn't get, you know, extinct because it's such a critical cultural plant, but uh, also a critical foundational species for the for the forests and for water, you know, for all of us in the state. You know, the, the forest is the, the main way of recharging, you know, aquifers and aquifers provide us our water. So it's a very important plant. Anything else then you think is important to underscore? I mean, you guys are going to have your act inspectors out at the airports. You know, I think, you know, people can look at the press release. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, there's a bunch of um, links to other resources for, you know, what people can do. You know, you know, cleaning your boots, you know, when you're out in the forest. Um, you know, when you're harvesting, you do need to harvest. You know, clean your tools, clean your vehicles. You know, and then obviously making sure that you're not leaving the island with anything that's potentially infested. I think that that's the, that's the main thing at this point for people to understand what the disease is, how it impacts our monarch, and then just, you know, all of us generally and, you know, educating themselves because, you know, that that's the most critical component. Just people understand they can help other people to understand and it just, you know, spreads out so much faster. It's just good housekeeping. Just keep things clean, oh, yeah. right? It's just like COVID. <laughs> Wash your hands, yeah. wipe things down. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah. It, you know, the, the, the disease, you know, right? The, you know, they have boot brushes. They have a lot of stations. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's not, um, I mean, the stuff is readily available that mm-hmm. you can use to sterilize your tools and your shoes. And, it, it, you know, it's not a lot of work. We've been hearing from Jonathan Ho of the State Agriculture Department with a reminder to those traveling to the Big Island for Mary Monarch, do not transport Ohia laid to other islands when you return home. Please help prevent the spread of this devastating disease across the state. is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to talk about a rare celestial event that will lead to the creation of a massive new galaxy. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive and equally fascinating universe surrounding our tiny planet. And as usual, we are thrilled and grateful to be guided by astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What is in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. 
for this week's stargazers. Both Mars and Venus can be seen in the western sky after sunset. Both planets are bright and easy to spot. The moon this week is waning, meaning dark sky conditions should be wonderful by week's end. I don't think that's going to help with the merging quasars the good folks up at Mount Ikea have for us, but... I know you'll be able to fill us in. Yeah, astronomers using the Gemini North Observatory atop Mauna Kea have discovered two quasars that are on the verge of merging to form a massive elliptical galaxy. This is a supremely rare event to capture, especially given that the two quasars lie in the distant universe and were thought to have formed around 3 billion years after the Big Bang, the event which created the universe as we know it. This discovery was also confirmed by the Keck Observatory, also on Mauna Kea. And how about we back the train up to just a couple of stops and tell everybody about what a quasar is. <laughs> right. Well, a quasar is a beam of intense light emitted by distant galaxies. They appear bright to us because we are viewing the outflow of radiation from massive jets that are spewing out from the galactic poles, kind of like a spinning top. The engine that drives these jets, however, is a super massive black hole. Galaxies, basically, Chris. Yep, just very energetic ones. And what's really cool is that when two quasars merge, they kick off an explosive period of star formation. It's like mixing Mentos and cola in a bottle. Once they combine, boom, starburst. <laughs> and this is uh, probably on the rarer side for observations. Yeah, it really is, especially for two objects that form so early after the Big Bang. However, because they are far away, we are viewing them as they were, not as they exist now, since the light that we are seeing has traveled over 10 billion light years to reach us. That means that these quasars and the galaxy they created are probably long gone. Older than disco, we like to say. <laughs> A lot older. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no pun intended, but that's sort of one of the funky things about the universe because <laughs> we're kind of looking back in uh, time, as it were. Yeah, totally. This event has long since transpired, and what we are seeing are basically light echoes, ghosts of a story that has long since reached its conclusion. Well, we're grateful to have that update on it from you. Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, designing more than 2,000 projects since 1988, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. Now it's time for your backyard quiz answer. Earlier we asked you about one of Hawaii's forgotten baseball greats, Henry Oana Jr. Following a three-year stint with various teams in the minor leagues, Oana became the fourth Hawaiian player to play ball in the major league, first for the Philadelphia Phillies, then for the Detroit Tigers. While Oana boasted impressive stats during his time in the majors, he ultimately fell victim to racial discrimination and his employment was only reinstated during a player shortage during World War II. In 1945, Oana was a member of the Detroit Tigers World Series winning team, although that would be his final year in the majors. He transitioned back into the minor leagues for a few years and after retiring, lived the rest of his days in Austin, Texas, where he is buried. Throughout his career, Oana was known as Prince, which was the answer to today's backyard quiz. Prince has a tie to this year's Merry Monarch Festival. He happens to be the grandfather of the Merry Monarch King, Brooks Oana. Prince is also the great-grandfather of our very own uh, conversation producer, Russell Subiono. Uh, and our winner today is Cliff from Manoa. You got it right. And that's the quiz for today. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. The 2023 Major League Baseball season is in full swing, and folks in the island nation of Palau are a little more excited than the average fan. That's because their youth players have been receiving lightly used baseball equipment from people in Hawaii. Kyler Agon and his younger brother Carter are students at Mid-Pacific Institute. They both play baseball for the school, and they recently started the Kinipopoho Foundation. It is a nonprofit that collects used sports equipment and then turns around and donates them to youth in Palau. The Conversations Russell Subiano got the chance to talk to the brothers in our studio about their efforts. Can you talk about what your foundation does? 
So we collect lightly used baseball equipment specifically, and we donate them to people who need it. Probably gonna try donate to places other than Palau, but our first donation was to Palau. Was there a reason why you guys chose Palau specifically? We worked with Senator Glenn Wakai, and then he has a charity that does donate other stuff to Palau. So he had a shipping container that had room in it, so we were able to partner with him and donate our equipment in his container. Okay, so it kind of it kind of worked out that by working with Senator Wakai, that that's kind of where the equipment goes to. It kind of just worked out that way. Yeah. Okay. And what was the reason why you decided to focus on sports equipment? Is it because sports is an important part of your guys' life? Yeah, I would say that sports is a big part of our life. Mm-hmm. And people in Malaysia are less fortunate to have that luxury of sports equipment. So we decided to donate lightly used or stuff that don't fit us anymore to like Palau or Malaysia. Mm-hmm. What's some of your favorite sports that you play? Me, I only play baseball. Mm-hmm. And Kyler, he plays football and baseball. Yeah, I yeah. play football and baseball. We haven't donated any football equipment yet. I don't know if we're planning to donate football yeah. stuff because football is really only big like in the United States. Football seems to be a very kind of regional sport when it comes to the world as a whole. So sports like soccer and baseball seem to be a little bit more global. What kinds of sports equipment have you guys sent out? Has it been primarily baseball, or are there some other sporting equipment that's been donated? So far, it's been only baseball equipment. And what what kind of baseball equipment? Is it everything from bats to balls to shoes, or is it very is it very specific? Uh, it's like everything, like tees, nets, balls, gloves, shoes, kind of everything. I was gonna ask about hockey. <laughs> this is like <laughs> any hockey equipment donated. Uh, no. No, no. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that Senator Wakai already kind of has a donation going out to Palau, and your foundation is kind of piggybacking on that. Do you guys have plans to go to Palau? Do you think it would be kind of cool to go there and to actually deliver the sports equipment personally? Yeah, maybe eventually we might do that, but right now we're pretty busy with school and sports. Yeah. So maybe after we, like, graduate, maybe we could go and donate it ourselves, hopefully one day. Do you think that you might be able to, or you hope to do this on a wider scale? Like, do you think maybe down the road, you might be able to do more types of sporting equipments to more countries? Yeah, that would be amazing to just like, be able to make sure that like, every child is able to be able to play any kind of sport that they love. Sports teaches us a lot of lessons and can be a big contributor to youth growing up. What kind of impacts has sports had in your life? What what have you learned from sports? What has that taught you in terms of being brothers and having a, a, a brotherly bond? Are you guys competitive about the way you play baseball or are you guys complimentary? Do you guys encourage each other? I would say pretty competitive. Yeah, I'd say like it's a little bit of both. Like, since we're like, you know, we're on the same team, we have the same goal. We both want each other to do well and to contribute to our team succeeding. But we also want to compete and be better than the other person. Yeah. And I think in this day and age where we not only see how sports can benefit our youth, we also kind of see sometimes you know parents overreacting or being a little bit too involved. How do you guys feel about keeping sports pure for youth? Just say like most of the time, especially for like the younger kids, yeah. you just gotta let them you know go out there and do their thing, let them have fun. Maybe just have like, I guess like having the spectators engage also is good because then their parent can you know talk to the kid about the game. Maybe if parent didn't know about the game before, but the kid wants to play it, they can learn about the game with the kid. It could be a, an opportunity for them to bond or to have a, something in common to to talk about or to to do together. You chose the name Kinipopo Ho for the name of your foundation. What does that mean? That's like to like to use again because we're making sure that like the equipment that we don't use can still be used is being able to be used by someone who needs it and not just being wasted. Being able to to find new life for the sporting equipment, to be able to benefit someone while that while the equipment still has some use to it. Whose idea was it to create a nonprofit? Was that something that you guys learned from Senator Wakai as well? So the foundation started because we were arriving home from something, 
And then there was like a box of like shoes and stuff. And my mom told my brother to throw away his cleats. And then I just like looked over at his cleats and I was like, I could give it to somebody because those look like they're in a usable condition. They weren't like destroyed and stuff. So I just said we should donate it. And then it just went over from there and became the foundation. But we want to just have it be like an organized thing so that more people can donate and more people can receive equipment. It's a way to give donors an incentive to give money to your organization or to give the the equipment to you guys. If people out there have some lightly used sports equipment that they're not using anymore, that they're kind of just, it's just kind of sitting in the closet somewhere and they want to donate it or they want to donate money to your foundation, how do they go about doing that? So there's multiple ways you could do it. The first is if you live near the downtown area that's by Hawaiian Hardball, you can drive over there and then you can donate your equipment at Hawaiian Hardball. But if you can't go to Hawaiian Hardball, then you could go to our website, which is kinipopoho.com, and then you can contact us and then we can come over to wherever you want to meet up and then we can pick up the equipment. And I know it's primarily baseball equipment. What do you think is the most needed piece of baseball equipment? That's hard to say because it's like everything. I would say like gloves mostly, maybe bats and helmets, like the essential stuff. All right. Well, thanks so much for your guys' time. Really appreciate you coming in. And it's really nice to hear two young people from Hawaii doing some really good things to impact youth all over the world. Thank you. Thank you. Kyler, thanks, man. Yep. Those were Mid-Pacific Institute's baseball players and brothers, Kyler and Carter Agone, talking with H-Pairs Russell Subiono. We'll have a link to more information about their Kinney Popo Foundation on the conversation page of our website later today. Well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we kick off our membership campaign. We'll be hearing from Hank Rogers, who we have to thank for our Tetris Game Boy memories. Share your comments or questions about what you heard on our show by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.